to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Bullock. And welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fullick, and as always, we like to talk about things related to business continuity, disaster planning, resiliency, um, COVID-19, of course, and anything that's relatable to those fields. Uh, as for topics, if there is something you'd like us to talk about on the show, please feel free, send me an email. You can go to the show's uh, webpage on voiceamerica.com. There is a button where you can send me an email. I do get all emails and I do respond to everything. Also, if there's a product or service or advertising you'd like to talk about on the show, again, reach me the same way and I can get you some information. I'd like to thank everybody at Stone Road and their product, Boast Assessment, B-O-A-S-T, assessment.com, for sponsoring today's show. And uh, all the conferences that I've been mentioning over the last few months are now virtual, Uh, But I will still be participating on some level uh, for the Continuity and Resilience Today conference that was uh, here in Toronto, October 7th and 8th, Uh, BCI World, November 5th and 6th, um, scheduled for Birmingham, UK. Uh, And uh, we won't be holding a live broadcast from the fall DRJ in Phoenix this year, um, obviously because of COVID-19, travel restrictions and, you know, health concerns and things like that. But I'm hoping to still be involved with that as well. And I'll let you know when I uh, hear things. Now, the first item I mentioned was if there was a topic you'd like to talk about on the show. And I always tell people, you know, reach out and, uh, you know, uh, talk to me about it. Well, today's guest did that. So uh, we sent some emails back and forth to see, okay, what can we uh, talk about? Or, you know, how do we put a business continuity resiliency type twist on things? And um, we agreed. And... Uh, As you know, I like to read, and so today's guest is actually an author. I'd like to welcome to the show the author of In Defense of Adversity, Mr. Steve Gavatorda. Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you, Alex. Pleasure to be here. Um, Thanks for reaching out, first of all. Um, you know, you're, you you prove my comment at the beginning of every show that I do, you know, reach out uh, to (laughs) anyone who contacts me. So, (laughs) so I'm glad it worked out in our favor. It's interesting. You mentioned I'm a published author. I've been published twice and you mentioned my second book. My first book was actually called reach out approach. So it's kind of appropriate, I'd say. (laughs) Yeah, it is. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, before before we jump into the topic um, that we have today, can you give our listeners, uh, a, tell us a little bit about yourself? Because we've got people around the globe, so some people may not, you know, um, may not be aware of uh, In Defense of Adversity and may not know who Steve is. So could you kind of give us a quick bio? Sure. Sure. I own a T-Gavatorta group, which is a coaching, cult, consulting, and training company. And I were, I've owned my company for 17 years. And basically what I do, I go into my client site and I really uncover their respective needs. And I will build custom-based 
coaching, training, uh, speaking programs relevant to their respective needs. Um, so it's really customized uh, personal and professional development for um, anywhere from big organizations like Stanley Black & Decker to smaller entrepreneurial organizations and working one-on-one with people as well, too. Um, I have several certifications. I'm a certified, I'm certified in DISC, is, which is a behavioral assessment. I'm a certified practitioner for Myers-Briggs and also certified to coach and train against bar on emotional intelligence. Uh, prior to, and I'm twice, as I said earlier, twice uh, two-time published author, my most recent book, In Defense of Adversity, Turning Your Toughest Challenges, and the previous book was Reach Out Approach. Uh, prior to owning my business, which I stated was uh, I've owned my business for 17 years, I spent 22 years in corporate America, primarily in sales and marketing-oriented roles with the consumer brand divisions of, of pharmaceutical companies. So basically, uh, any company that produced things such as toothpaste, healthcare products, um, uh, cough and cold items, front-end gum and mints in a grocery store, anything you'd buy in a food, drug, and mass merchandiser. I spent 22 years in that industry, and again, an array of uh, cross-functional roles. So it's been a long time both working within corporate America and with corporate America as respective clients. Well, great. Thanks. It's Like I said, it's good to have you on the show. So let's jump right into Thank things. Thank you. Yes. Now, your book is called In Defense of Adversity. Now, believe it or not, I, I, I know we've got a little bit of an outline here, but what's your definition of adversity? Because it's sometimes it's different for an organization than it is for That's an right. individual. So how do you define adversity? That's right. You know, it's interesting. I, I, I went in my talk, I do, I, I do a workshop on this. I do uh, webinars on it, speaking engagements. The first thing I say is there's no silver bullet for adversity or how people define it. It can come in thousands of forms. It's highly personal and situational. Now, what might be considered an adverse situation for one person may be an exciting challenge for another. So it's deeply mm-hmm. personal. Um, I guess what I would define it is is a, a person, an event, or a scenario situation that makes someone uncomfortable. So whether they, where they feel out of their comfort zone, they're, they're, they're challenged, so to speak. So it could be facing an obstacle. It could be dealing with change. Uh, it could be ambiguity. It could be the speed of uh, change in the crazy world we're in now. So it really depends on the person, and it's uh, and it's going to be highly personal. Again, I think it's anything that sets people into that uncomfort zone. If I'm challenged by obstacles, there's still probably some things out there that will make me feel uncomfortable, put me in that uncomfortable place. So th- th- based on that person, that uncomfortableness, will be defined by them. All I can say is this, uh, the topic of adversity is a hot topic, not, uh, and it simply didn't happen because of the COVID-19 scenario. Back uh, mm-hmm. two years ago, two and a half years ago, when I was researching my book, uh, I did a Google search on the phrase, how to deal with adversity. At that point, at that time frame, we received, or I received, over 21 million results. When you would, when wow. you would Google that phrase, so it's a hot topic now, and again, I think in many ways it's deeply defined uh, by the individual. 
I, I think that's a great way of putting it because I, while you were talking, I was thinking, you know, with COVID-19, there are some families, you know, that uh, unfortunately are out of work and the children are at their home. They face a different right. set uh, of adversity challenges to someone who is working from home, has no kids, you know, just the dog and is still working. You know, yeah, yeah, even yet, yeah. even yet, both are impacted by the same thing. That's correct. That's correct. You know, and what I also do is I tie together um, the behavioral assessment I mentioned earlier. Well, whether it's DISC or Myers-Briggs, I tie together. Um, I personalize that to help people understand what are those, what I call the emotional triggers and emotional responses that manifest in, in an individual. So what are those triggers that can set me into an emotional state of freeze, fight, or flight? And how does that manifest in me or an individual? Is it, is it freeze, fight, or flight? So um, the more we can understand those things that may trigger us into that uncomfortable state of being, the more we're going to be able to, to some extent, self-manage ourselves. And in turn, when we, can, we know, when we are thrown into that trigger, what is our negative emotional response? And the more we can understand those two aspects, our triggers and responses, the better we're going to be able to understand um, those things that are we consider adverse to us and how best to handle it. Well, you mentioned triggers, and I know this was in our list as well. What kind of triggers? You know, and what, what does it do to us? You know, and, and what yeah, it really does, runs, it may be the sure. same trigger not do to somebody else. That's correct. Well, let's go backwards a little bit. In my book, um, I talk a lot about brain functionality and how our brain functions under stress. And I talk about two important parts of our brain. Uh, the first is called our limbic system, also known as our emotional brain. Uh, that's what we're born with. And our limbic system does not grow, transform, or evolve through time. It's what we're born with. And when we are functioning in that limbic state of mind, when an adverse situation hits, our adrenaline starts rushing, and our response is going to be emotional, freeze, fight, or flight. And as you can imagine, when you're stuck in freeze, fight, or flight, that's not a good place to be. You're not going to make wise decisions. You're not going to mm-hmm. think clearly. You're not going to be able to solve problems. You may say things you're going to regret later. Now, our limbic system was great. It's what we were born with. It was great when we were babies. When we knew we were hungry, we would cry, and we, our parents would feed us. But we're no longer babies anymore, so you know, functioning in that limbic system, you need to be very careful being overly emotional during adverse times. The other mm-hmm. part of our brain is called the cortex, also known as our rational brain. That does grow, transform, and evolve through time. Through our, uh, through our learnings, our experiences, our training, you know, we can start building our cortex muscles, so to speak. So through education, through our training and development, through our life experiences, both, ad- both good and bad, especially bad, we can build our cortex muscle and learn to handle adverse situations in a positive manner. That's where rational thinking lies. That's where reason and logic lie. That's where we're able to draw conclusions and make correlations. So the bottom line is when we are in an adverse or that uncomfortable situation, we need to be functioning functioning in that rational part of our brain, our cortex, so to speak. So when an adverse situation hits and someone says, you know, be calm, be cool, it's okay, it's okay, you know, it may be frustrating for people to hear that, but 
there is mm-hmm. science uh, that backs that and brain functionality that supports that as well, too. So what I do is, based on your behavior style, your personality, I help people understand what are those things that trigger me and how does that manifest in a limbic emotional response? Am I a freezer, fighter, or flighter? Because the more, again, I can understand those triggers and what my response is, the more I'm going to be able to self-manage. So, for instance, a certain style in the behavioral assessment disc, uh, disc terms, a dominant style, that's a type A personality, a very aggressive person, not being challenged can be, be adverse to them because they need to be challenged. You know, being stuck in this COVID-19 situation and maybe not being able to engage their team, not being able to engage customers could be a frustrating situation for that person and set them into a fight mode. Whereas another person um, may need the people interaction. They like being around people. They get their energy from people. Being mm-hmm. virtual may be driving them crazy. So that could be an adverse environment for that person, and that can in turn put them in a uh, more of a flight and non-productive mode. So, um, again, very much what we were saying earlier, what, what, how you define adversity differs by person, and how you define the triggers and those responses is deeply personal as well, too. So thinking of the current uh, COVID situation and, you know, the economy and things like that with organizations uh, and communities, I'm assuming that for them to be a really uh, a good leader, they really need to make sure they've developed that limbic side of them, right? That, that limbic part Actually, of the brain. the cortex side of them. So how do, how, do the, you know, how do they do that as a leader? Do they have to go through, you know, adversity to do that? You know, how, how do you, you know, yeah. use that muscle? Yeah, you know? I, that's correct. What I do is I connect the dots between emotional intelligence and successful leadership. I'm not sure if your listeners know what emotional intelligence is, but I think of IQ as being our brain smarts, how smart we are. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we could be a Harvard-educated ed- grad, a doctorate, or a master's degree. But if we irritate people around us, if we're susceptible to losing our patience, getting angry, then we're not no longer effective as a leader. Um, Mm -hmm. Or if we irritate people around us, we're no longer effective as a leader. So that's high IQ with low EQ. High EQ people are very aware and astute of their emotions. So EQ consists of really three parts. First is intrapersonal skills. How well does someone know themselves? How well, what's their behavior style? How do they communicate? How do they make decisions? How are they motivated? How do they deal with change, risk, and conflict in decision-making? Because the more I can understand those attributes in myself, the more self-aware and the better I will be able to manage myself. The second part of emotional intelligence is interpersonal skills. How well can I read those same attributes in those people whom I'm engaging with, whether I'm leading them, whether I'm engaging them in a, um, a, a uh, team environment, or whether I'm engaging them as customers. The more I can read others, the more successful I'm going to be. So if I understand myself, I'm good at reading others, I am also good at, I'm much more uh, able to be resilient in adverse times. I'm much able to 
persevere during difficult times. I'm going to make better decisions. I'm going to be able to solve problems. So my whole point is people, great leaders, have high emotional intelligence. Um, part of our understanding of our triggers and responses is a way of growing our emotional intelligence. So to your point, I'm sorry, I hope it wasn't too long, but I think um, great leaders are, are very open to learning from every situation that they encounter, especially adverse situations. I know my toughest times have ultimately been my greatest times when I've overcome a uh, difficult time. I've, I've grown as a person more than ever. And I think that's the key is for great leaders is to take every situation placed in their lives and use those situations as a chance to grow, transform, and evolve into the person they were meant to become. Um, I'm not sure how much time we have on this first uh First segment, but thirty seconds. Quote, believe it or not, <laughs> okay. Well, we could we could save this quote for afterwards. It's a very good quote that speaks about Abraham Lincoln's perception of adversity and how okay. that perception drove his success as potentially one of the United States' greatest presidents of all time. Okay, we'll come back to that at the start of our uh, second uh, segment. Today, we are talking with the author of In Defense of Adversity, Steve Gavartorta, and we'll be right back. Are you ready for your erotic journey? Join host Lexi Silver every week for SDC's Seek, Discover, Create, the radio show. Whether you're new at this journey or well-traveled on the sexual road, we'll help you find your way with guest experts and hot topics about sex, relationships, and your health. You can also connect with the communities of SDC.com for even more advice and discussion. Listen every Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Join hosts Navanav every week for Good Morning Canada. Our home is Canada, but our message and reach is boldly global. Our focus is on the alternative perspective, the hidden dimension, and the expansive horizon. Ideas are designed to be challenged, perceptions shattered, and information balanced. We invite you to visualize the converse viewpoint. Dare to be acquiring, but always promise an hour of lively fun. Listen worldwide at 12 noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Every day, we're surrounded by technical buzzwords and jargon that can go way over our heads. Now, there's a show that brings it all back down to earth. Tune in for today, Tomorrow's Technologies, with host Jose Negron. We'll not only explain the new technologies that are shaping our world, we'll give you the benefits and backstory of these technologies. Listen for T3 with Jose Negron, live every Tuesday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to The Patricia Raskin Show on voiceamerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This is the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions with the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, Patricia Raskin. So tune in and call in to The Patricia Raskin Show, Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. 
And welcome back to the show. Today we are talking with Steve Gavatorda, the author of In Defense of Adversity. Steve, in the first segment, um, right at the end, you mentioned a quote about Abraham Lincoln and uh, adversity. Uh, can you uh, kind of tell us what you're going to talk about there? Yeah, yeah. And uh, one of the things I kick off talking about, and alluding to a lot of what we talked about in the first segment, is, you know, great leaders have a very positive perception of obstacles, of adversity, of ambiguity. And I, I often uh, speak to two things. Great leaders will accept that adversity is part of life. You know, they're not, hence, they are not surprised when it happens. They are not thrown in that limbic state of freeze, fight, or flight because they just know that obstacles are a part of life. So great leaders accept that difficulties are part of, of, of our world. Secondly, they acknowledge that adversity is meant to help them or, and or their organization grow, transform, and evolve. As, they, uh, as, this, as the phrase goes, let no crisis go to waste. I think great leaders really realize that, and they see the opportunity uh, for success in light of adverse times or ambig- amb- ambiguous times. So going back to the quote, I, I think this quote really speaks to Abraham Lincoln's perception of adversity, accepting that adversity is a part of life, and also leveraging those adverse situations he faced to help him become a great leader. And the quote was from a reporter named Horace Greeley, who was often at odds with Abraham Lincoln, and his quote was stated after Lincoln's assassination, after his death. Uh, but Horace Greeley basically said that uh, Abraham Lincoln was not born king of men, but a child of the common people, who made himself a great persuader, therefore a leader, by firm resolve and dogged perseverance. This is the most important part here. He was open to all impressions and influences, and gladly profited by the teaching of events and circumstances, no matter how adverse or unwelcome. There was probably no year in his life when he was not a wiser, cooler, and better man than he had been the year preceding. So I don't know if you know much about the history of Abraham Lincoln and all the obstacles he faced leading up to becoming uh, a president of the United States, but he had uh, family deaths, divorces, business failures, illness. Uh, He faced a great deal of obstacles, but he leveraged all those to his advantage to ultimately, again, become a fantastic leader, and it all tied to his perception of adversity, accepting that it's a part of life and leveraging as an opportunity for him to grow. Yeah, actually, I have done uh, quite a bit of reading on uh, Abraham Lincoln, and uh, yeah, it it was rather interesting hearing all the obstacles he got through and then still to be able to make it to president. Exactly. And I'd say, too, Abraham Lincoln is a great example of how someone with high emotional intelligence. He really was aware of his strengths, his weaknesses. He was able to uh, self-manage himself pretty well, despite all the obstacles he faced. And he um, was able to connect and, and persuade and, and lead others. So, and deal with, uh, you know, his job as president was to save the Union. What more adverse uh, scenario can happen more than trying to save a country. So uh, mm-hmm. that high emotional intelligence bode well for him in one of the United States' most cru- crucial uh, points in its history. Well, I'd like to stay on the leadership uh, bit for just a little bit longer. Sure. You, now, you, you talked about the limbic and the cortex. And with today's environment, you know, there's a lot of adversity for people. There's a lot of uncertainties, a lot of 
you know, and for some people, even panic. How can you know, a leader, a leader with strong, you know, emotional intelligence, how can they, or what should they do to help some of these people to to know that you know what, we will come out the other end, you know. That's correct. Yeah, yeah, and and again, um, the point I wanted to talk about, mention earlier when we were talking about cortex and limbic system, the key takeaway, if there's anything for your listeners today, is this. When adversity strikes, ambiguity strikes, um, unprecedented time strikes, everything that we're going through now, the number one thing a leader needs to do, or anyone needs to do for that matter, is to prevent the transfer of authority from the cortex to the limbic system. In other words, they must prevent us losing our rational thinking. We must stay in that rational state of mind. Does that make sense? We cannot allow ourselves to fall into that limbic state of mind, a freeze fight or flight or some combination of those, because we are no longer effective as a leader. When I'm angry, I'm no longer effective. If I'm shutting down, I am no longer effective as a leader. In addition, I, if I'm a poor leader, can put my team into that non-productive limbic state. So if I'm a yeller and screamer, if I'm angry, I'm going to shut my employees down or they're going to get angry, and neither one of us is is successful anymore. So it's of the utmost importance to, uh, for a leader to keep in that cortex, rational thinking state of mind, and then he or she will be able to find a solution. He or she will keep their team functioning at, at an optimal level. Um, Rudolph Giuliani, the mayor of New York City, I lived in New York City during 9-11, and his leadership during 9-11 was outstanding. And Giuliani stated a great quote his father told him, or some wisdom his father told him years ago. And his father said, basically, you know, when you're stuck, when you're stuck in a difficult situation, you need to be the calmest person in the room. Only when you're the calmest person in the room will you be able to figure your way out of that. So in essence, Rudolph Giuliani's dad was saying, when adversity strikes, Stay in the cortex. Stay in that rational state of mind. So that's the number one thing to do is be calm, cool, poised. Keep yourself in that rational state of mind, that high optimal brain functioning state of mind. And also be cognizant of those people you're leading. Know their triggers and their responses. Know who may get uh, frustrated with being stagnant. Know who might get frustrated with uh, not having answers. Know who might get frustrated with not having enough people interaction. If I can understand those dynamics and the people I'm leading, I'm going to be able to be more aware of their, their triggers and not let them fall into that free fight or flight mode that's, that's so nonproductive. You know, I think other things great leaders can do is, is really fall back. First of all, create a strong foundation of a vision, mission, a statement with strong core values. Those are the things that sh- should be the solid ground despite what obstacles hit. You know, I don't care if COVID-19 hit uh, hit like it did. We should still fall back on our vision, mission, values, because that's the foundation for us to make our decisions as an organization. So the great leaders know, they communicate, they ensure every department is aware of, each drinks and sleeps those vision, mission, and values and great leaders also keep people um, functioning on a, on in that uh, high brain state, so to speak, by keeping them in that uh, 
cortex state of mind. A lot of information, or I hope that made sense. <laughs> oh, yeah, it did. I've, I've got a couple of questions for you on that. <laughs> sure. Uh, so that doesn't mean that, you know, a, a leader that is, you know, staying calm and everything, it doesn't mean they're shutting off emotions, right? You know, if someone That's correct. passes, it doesn't mean, you know, that uh, they don't care. That's correct. You know, and I want to distinguish, you know, emotions, I'm not saying in and of themselves are a bad thing. Love's a great emotion, right? You want to be a loving leader, a loving person. What I'm stating, though, is when you are in free fight or flight and you are no longer functioning, you're in a total emotional state, your adrenaline's rushing. I even think, you know, um, well-channeled anger is okay, just so it's controlled. You know, if I'm yelling off the top of my lungs, I'm, I've lost control, you're no longer productive. But if you can, you know, deliver a nice, firm, strong message and show some sense of urgency there without, you know, losing or being in that fight mode, then I think that's a productive thing. I, what I'm talking about is when we get in that emotional state and we're no longer functioning. Another key piece I want to mention, Alex, the importance of not falling into that limbic state of state is this. When I get angry, when I get mad, I cannot immediately get unmad. It's going to take time. And that time is going to be dependent on the person in the situation. It may take a day. It may take weeks. It may take an hour. Who knows? But in that time frame where, where I'm angry, and I can't, I'm in that limbic state, I, again, am going to make, I can make some bad decisions. I could say mm-hmm. some things I'm going to regret later. I'm not going to be able to solve problems. Same thing with shutting down. I have a tendency, if I'm in my limbic state, is to shut down. I'm a freezer and a fighter. So mm-hmm. shutting down for me, when I'm unable to think clearly, when I'm afraid to take a risk, because I'm stagnant, that's no longer productive. And once again, when I fall in that shutdown state, I may not get out of that right away. So the importance of great leaders is to not allow them to fall in that non-productive, emotional freeze, fight, or flight. Because, again, when they're in that state, they are no longer productive. When their people are in that state, they are no longer productive either. And, and I guess if the leader um, stays calm and rational, makes good decisions, that uh, trickles down to, you know, their colleagues and or subordinates or whoever, you know, and it gives them a greater, um, um, what do you call it, uh, you know, a, a better understanding of wanting to stay with that leader and follow that leader. But if that leader is completely out of control and irrational, then I guess, you know, it panics employees as, you know, thinking that, oh, my God, you know, the company doesn't know what they're doing, Right. That's right. That's right. You pushed me into anger. You pushed me into uh, shutting down. You pushed me into freezing. And, that, you know, the anger of freeze, fight, or flight manifests in different ways for someone who is a freezer uh, like me. You know, uh, things that can, uh, how that man- may manifest is I may shut down. If I'm in that emotional limbic state of freeze, or I'm sorry, uh, yeah, freeze, I might shut down. I may move at a snail's pace. I may become overly sensitive. I may be unable to think out of the box. So I'm not productive anymore. If that Mm -hmm. leader can connect, engage with me, and keep me in that calm, cool state of mind, you're going to see the flip side of those positive attributes come out. You know, someone who's collaborative, someone who's trustworthy, someone who can get the best out of uh, 
his or her colleagues. You know, you're going to get the best out of your your teams by keeping them all keeping them operating in those positive state of minds. And in addition, their positive attributes are going to manifest better as well too. Those analytic thinkers will become even more analytical and solve problems. Those people motivators will be able to engage and keep people motivated. Um, during a crisis, those people who are the dominant style can be a great influencer and great, uh, you know, fighter during those times. So when I get into the behavior styles, I really look at what are the negative sides of each of these styles when they're in that limbic state, but more importantly, what their, how their styles manifest when they're functioning in that optimal cortex state of mind as well, too. So from what I'm, what I'm understanding is that's a key aspect to creating resiliency within an organization, isn't it? Absolutely. If, I, if I'm able, to, again, to think clearly and solve those problems, you know, I'm going to be more resilient. If I, and it's, it is building your resilience muscle. Again, looking mm-hmm. back at my most difficult times, um, I built my, that's when I built my resilience muscles. If I was uh, shielded from that, I would not have developed into the person I am today. Um, I hope I'm not going to offend any of your, your, your audience with what I'm going to say now, but that's why I'm very against for for young young kids or, or children uh, participation trophies. You know, getting a trophy even though you lose, or or everybody gets a trophy. It's a nice gesture, but I think in many ways you're robbing children of what it means to fail, or what it means to not win the championship, or what it means. What I need to work on myself, and you're essentially you're you're stymieing the development of their cortex part of the brain by not allowing them to be resilient in adverse times. If I've never had to be resilient before, how am I going to build my resilience muscle? So, so this this keeping calm, cool, collected, facing obstacles head on, dealing with ambiguity is a great way to to build resilience, just as you said. And I think times like we're going through now, the COVID-19, the ambiguity, unprecedented times, is truly an opportunity for companies, individuals, and leaders to gain a competitive advantage. Those who can keep that calm, cool, collected head as leaders and keep their company running that same efficient way, despite all these crazy times, is really a chance for a company to, you know, steal some market share, um, show their wares, and really gain a competitive advantage. So, Yeah, pivot, pivot to the new, uh, to get themselves over the adverse situation they find in. And as you said in the exactly. first segment, see that adversity as a, an opportunity to learn and grow. Exactly. Exactly. As I said earlier, the, the old adage, uh, you know, never let a crisis go to waste. Uh, you know, that's yeah. an opportunity. I, even when they, I was reading something on the World War II a few days ago in the Battle of the Bulge. I don't know if you know what your read, listen, listeners know what exactly what that I, I know what about. it is. <laughs> it, yeah, Hitler and, and the Nazi, Nazis really pressed deep into the Allies part of uh, the territory. It was a total surprise, which shocked the Allies at first. But essentially, Eisenhower and Patton saw that as an opportunity because the, the Germans had overexposed themselves and allowed uh, the Allies to cut the Germans off. So in essence, during this, one of the most intense destructive battles in World War II also presented 
the greatest opportunity to end this war sooner rather than later. And, and thank goodness Eisenhower and Patton saw that opportunity. And I think that's a great uh, spot to end our second segment because we only had about 30 seconds left anyway. So a <laughs> perfect spot. Mm-hmm. We perfect. are talking perfect. today with author of In Defense of Adversity, uh, Steve Gavatorta, and we'll be right back. Are you ready for your erotic journey? Join host Lexi Silver every week for SDC's Seek, Discover, Create, the radio show. Whether you're new at this journey or well-traveled on the sexual road, we'll help you find your way with guest experts and hot topics about sex, relationships, and your health. You can also connect with the communities of SDC.com for even more advice and discussion. Listen every Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Join hosts Navanav every week for Good Morning Canada. Our home is Canada, but our message and reach is boldly global. Our focus is on the alternative perspective, the hidden dimension, and the expansive horizon. Ideas are designed to be challenged, perceptions shattered, and information balanced. We invite you to visualize the converse viewpoint. Dare to be inquiring, but always promise an hour of lively fun. Listen worldwide at 12 noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Every day, we're surrounded by technical buzzwords and jargon that can go way over our heads. Now, there's a show that brings it all back down to earth. Tune in for today, Tomorrow's Technologies, with host Jose Negron. We'll not only explain the new technologies that are shaping our world, we'll give you the benefits and backstory of these technologies. Listen for T3 with Jose Negron, live every Tuesday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to The Patricia Raskin Show on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This is the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions with the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, Patricia Raskin. So tune in and call in to The Patricia Raskin Show, Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. And welcome back to the show. We are talking with Steve Gavatorta, the author of In Defense of Adversity. Steve, great two segments. Um, hopefully uh, some people out there are, you know, considering the... Uh, uh, environment we're all in right now with COVID-19, you know, are, are really paying attention to some of the key points you're bringing up. And that leads me to where I'd like to start off this uh, last segment is, what kind of things should we look for in leaders, you know, if, if we are not dealing uh, with adversity very well ourselves, you know, we're, we're, mm-hmm. we're caught constantly stressed and panicked because of COVID-19, you know, with sending kids back to school or not going back to work or not, what kind of things can we look for in other people who may be dealing with this situation to help us uh, with our own uh, emotional intelligence and, you know, and build our own resiliency? What kind of things can we uh, look out for? 
You, are you saying so we don't fall into that limbic state of mind? Is that what you're saying? So we stay in that functioning in that cortex part of our brain? Yeah, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of, we're, we're scrambled, put it that way. We're scrambled, yeah, yeah. we don't really know I mean, where we are. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, there's something. There's a process I use uh, and I teach a lot in workshops and, and coaching environments called a situational debrief. And remember, part of again, our cortex again does grow, transform, and evolve through time, through experiences, through learnings, through adverse situations. As I said earlier, I've learned my most through the adverse situations I've faced. So, what a situational debrief is, it allows us either individually in our, if we want to learn a valuable lesson from an, a failure or un, an uncomfortable time or an adverse time, so we handle a different, in the future we can use a situational debrief process. If I'm coaching and leading one of my employees who may have had a failure or a bad situation happen, we can use a situational debrief process for that as well too. So what the situational debrief process is an opportunity for us to revisit a previously perceived failure. Uh, I say perceived failure because I don't believe there's anything such as failure if we learn from it. So something didn't go our way or we had a bad uh, communication with someone else, a blow up, so to speak. Situational debrief allows us to revisit that situation that we dealt with in a emotional state of mind. It allows us to review that situation in a rational state of mind so we can connect the dots between what happened, uh, what did what were the outcomes? What did we learn, and what could we do next time? So that that is essentially the four steps of the situational debrief. So let's say I have a situation I didn't deal with well. It was that I perceived failure for me, or I didn't handle a situation correctly. I made bad decisions. What I need to do in the situation debrief is first step one is capture the situation, relive that situation, write it down, get into the moment of that situation. Step two is to review the outcomes of that situation, good, bad, or indifferent. What happened that was good, what happened that was bad. Thirdly, step three is define key learnings from that situation, meaning what what lessons did I learn? I didn't learn when I was going through that. And then lastly, identify key recommended changes, how you would have, or a plan of action for how you would handle that event again, or how would you handle that now? So what the situational debrief does, it allows me to step back and rewire my brain to a situation that didn't go well or or I I didn't function at my optimal level. I was in that emotional state and allows me to revisit it in a positive, rational light so lessons can be learned. In other words, the situational debrief allows me to build my cortex muscle and review that situation in a positive light so if and when it happens down the road, I'm going to be prepared for it. I've been there before. I've handled this. So th- that, that's a process I recommended, recommend leaders do. In addition, a leader can use this process with his or her people, too. So let's say a, a salesperson has a bad engagement with a client, angers a client. You can walk through those four steps with them to see, reconnect dots between what they did and what they could have done differently so they're rewiring their brain. Three things I talk about when adversity strikes. The first one is assertively face it. A lot of people don't like to face it, don't like to deal with it, or they get mad. They don't want to assertively face it. Hey, there's an obstacle in front of us. We need to deal with it. Hopefully, number two, we successfully overcome it. That's the the best thing. 
But thirdly, at the least, learn a valuable lesson from it. You know, I, again, I firmly believe the, the obstacles in our lives are meant for us to, again, grow, transform, and evolve into the people we were meant to become. Only if we face the obstacles can we successfully overcome them. And again, if we don't successfully overcome them, we learn a lesson, just as Abraham Lincoln did, to prepare us down the road. Well, I, I don't know if you know, but I also have been working in a project and program management for 20-plus years, as well as business continuity disaster recovery. And as part of project management, we're always supposed to do um, what you call the lessons learned at the end, right? Yeah, or that's right. Post-implementation. But I, I found that you know it doesn't matter what client I've been working with, whether it's a uh, a large client, a small client, um, you know, a, a disaster recovery project, or you know, implementing a new system, whatever the case may be. When we get to those lessons learned, you know, we always focus on the negative, and we never see the positive yeah. learnings. Can can you comment right. on that? That's right. Yeah. I, again, I think that. I think it's the easy, I think people in many ways are prone or, or to, to fear failure, fear, fear not succeeding. So they will glom onto that negative aspect. What didn't go right? What did we do wrong? And that's what, if, if overcoming obstacles were so easy, if fears were non-existent, we wouldn't have all these problems that we do now. So I think people tend mm-hmm. to glom on to the negative side. What did we do wrong? What did we, what happened? Which is great. We need to capture that. We need to review those outcomes. But we also need to define what did we learn from that that is valuable to us moving forward. You know, a football, I played 13 years of organized American football. Uh, we would play our game on Friday nights or Saturday, Saturday mornings or, or Saturday afternoons. Every Monday, we would get together and we would review the film. We would watch what we did. And yes, we would point out the failures or what we did wrong, but we'd also connect the dots between what we should have done based on what our coaches taught us. So in other words, they're reconnecting what they taught us to do and what, what we didn't do and what that outcome was. In other words, reinforcing the message that if you would have listened to the what we told, taught you, we would have been successful. This situational debrief piece, I, it, it wasn't anything I made up. It was actually taken from my first job out of college. I was a salesperson selling toothpaste to grocery stores. And every time a manager went and worked with us, we would we would – typically made eight sales calls a day. After each of those calls, when we would make the call, the sales manager would not say a word during the call. He or she would let us fail, succeed, wouldn't say a word. But we would go back to the car after that call, whether we succeeded or failed, and we would go through the situational debrief, capturing the situation, reviewing the outcomes, defining key learnings, and what would your recommended action steps be next time. That allowed that manager to reconnect what what we didn't do well with what we had learned in training. So if I was to follow a four-step sales call process and I didn't and I failed, that was that manager's chance to reconnect between what I was trained on and success or failure in that call. So situational debrief, debrief allows us to reconnect between failure and what tools, skills, and insights you need for success. 
and that in turn builds that cortex muscle and helps us learn to succeed. Uh, you know, going back to your question, I think you know, you know, we go through the education. How many years of education? Reading, writing, arithmetic. When we do uh, go into a company, we're trained on certain skills or processes. You know, we're able to learn. Um, we may go to a seminar to learn something. But where is the class on failure? Where is the class on adversity? Where's the class on ambiguity? Mm-hmm. There isn't any. Yet school is in yeah. session to learn every day. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, every day yeah. offers us the opportunity to learn, grow, transform, and evolve. But there's no real schooling to do that. So I think we tend to glom onto those negative things. A little bit long-winded uh, response there, but I hope that hit the, hit the point. Well, it did, because it's good to hear that, you know, uh, being, and I've been in I, I, countless number of lessons learned sessions, that, you know, yeah. you can focus on the negative as long as you're, you, you know, you're going to learn from it to build a, an action plan moving forward, to be able to turn that that's, negative that's into exactly a positive, right. rather than what tends to happen, and I'm sure you've come across this, is people tend to f- point fingers, you know, and want to lay blame. Oh, yeah. Rather than learn. Yeah. And then, once again, that ties to the importance of a great leader functioning in that rational state of mind and having his or team do so as well, too, because that is a point of differentiation. As your competition are pointing fingers at themselves, you're not. So mm-hmm. I don't, it is very important, this whole thing about emotional intelligence, cortex thinking, um, looking at the the upside of obstacles is really, again, a, a great point of differentiation for organizations. And especially as we're facing the, these unprecedented times now, I think companies that can see through this, grow through it, uh, stick to their foundational vision, mission, values, communicate effectively, uh, being aligned, are really going to come on this thing in, in maybe, in many ways, a stronger place. I, th- I agree with you. Um, the other point that I, I got from your, um, as you put it, long-winded answer, but I thought it was great, <laughs> is, you know, every Monday, I think it was Monday you said, you were reviewing kind of what's happened after, you know, a point of time. So I, I'm getting the, the thought that this, you know, situation debrief sometimes, depending on the situation, may not necessarily be a one-time thing. It's something that you may want to revisit every so often on a regular basis, would, would I be interpreting that correctly, using your football no, analogy? You, every time. You know, a football season in high school consisted of 11 games. Every, uh, every Monday, <laughs> 11 weeks, we would redo that. Uh, you know, so uh, uh, with, with that first job out of college, I had every sales call. When a manager worked with me here, they didn't work with me every day, worked with me once a quarter, you know, every other month, something like that. But when they would make those eight calls with us, every call, bang, go through that situation on the brief, bang. That was their chance to connect dots between mm-hmm. what we were trained on and what did we succeed or not succeed in an opportunity if we didn't succeed to reconnect those dots between our training and, 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 and that success or that failure, so to speak. So situational debrief is an ongoing thing. Once again, I can use that with myself every day, whether it's a, you know, argument with my girlfriend, whether it's a, a, a not landing a major client, I can use this for myself. If I'm coaching one of my clients and he or she had a, you know, bad interaction with one of his or her employees. 
I can walk through this situational debrief with them. It allows us, once again, to build our cortex muscle between by connecting the dots between perceived failures or, or events that didn't go our way to what could have been successful. How could we have made that successful? Once again, preparing us, teaching us a lesson learned and preparing us down the road, too. So when we face a similar situation or exact situation, we know how to handle that now. We didn't let that crisis go to waste, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Well, Steve, we've got uh, under two minutes left. Do you have any final thoughts on uh, adversity? I just would say, uh, you know, even before this COVID-19 thing hit, I would always say part of my tagline for my business is, you know, we are in a fast-paced, high-tech, ever-evolving world. Change is hitting us faster than ever. Adversity is striking us deeper than ever. Um. Uh, decision-making have to get quicker. And this is our, our, our current and future state of our world. So we better get used to this. Adversity, ambiguity, unprecedented times, uncomfortable mm-hmm. times is going to be the norm, so to speak. Do not let those times uh, go to waste. Look at those times as an opportunity, to, again, to grow, transform, and evolve. And I think Mother Nature teaches us a lot of valuable lessons that validate that. Um, one of my favorite, it's an ancient, uh, ancient proverb that states uh, about a piece of coal. The gem cannot be perfected without friction, nor can man be perfected without trials. So here's this ugly piece of coal that became, becomes this beautiful, expensive, gorgeous diamond through years of pressure. I think that's a great metaphor for life, that are the obstacles placed in our lives is the pressure to make us grow, transform, and evolve into the leaders we were meant to become, into people we were meant to become. But we have to be willing to, you know, look at that in that light to be willing to learn the valuable lessons to, again, grow as we should. So, in other words, use those obstacles in our lives to help us um, uh, become the people we were meant to become. And I think that's a great place to end today's show. Steve, thanks very much for your time and expertise. I really enjoyed this conversation. I, I know we Likewise. I know we had an outline uh, put together, and we tended to go off it, which was completely fine. But uh, I really enjoyed uh, some of the things and examples uh, uh, you gave. I'm, I'm really going to push for these, this lesson learned ongoing thing rather than at the end of the road, so to speak. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And congratulations on the book, uh, again, In Defense of Thank Adversity. You. And I, I assume you're going to be working on another one? No, that might be it. <laughs> you know, it's kind uh, of funny when I was writing this one. I'm thinking, boy, this is, this is, I knew in writing this second book it was going to be adverse, adverse times for me. So I used a lot of this <laughs> philosophy I'm, uh, I'm, I'm teaching it while I was writing this one. So this will be it for a while. I'm quite proud of this. And there's still a lot of legs to go with this book. I wanted to offer something to you, Alex. I don't know how we can do this. But for any of your listeners, if you're interested in an e-version of my book, I'm happy to get that to you via Alex or however you want to do that. It's, it, I'm not saying it because it's sure. my book. It's a really good book and, um, and a lot of valuable insights about brain functionality, interviews I conducted with over 60 leaders. It ties the behavioral assessment disc into it as well, too. So um, if you want to offer that up somehow, I'm happy to do so, uh, provide that e-version. Okay, well, I'll look into that, and uh, I'll reach out to you separately on that one. So thanks again. Thanks again for uh, reaching out and being a part of the show. I really appreciate your time and expertise. 
And to everybody out there, if uh, you want to be on the show and talk about something, get in touch. Obviously, uh, you know, Steve is an example. You might be on the show. In the meantime, stay prepared, everybody. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week.